This week on the show, we have the Hyperbola developer interview that updates uh, some information from a previous episode. Uh, why you should migrate from Linux to BSD. There's a couple of things in there that might be a bit controversial, but we cover it anyway. Uh, then we have an article about FreeBSD being an amazing operating system. Uh, the NetBSDs are improving the Ptrace API in conjunction with LLVM 10. We also covered the first FreeBSD conference in Australia. And we have a guide to containers on FreeNAS, all in this episode on BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 335, FreeBSD Down Under, recorded for the 29th of January still in 2020. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Feuchling. And I am the producer, JT. Yes, uh, we're back with another episode of BSD Now, uh, giving Alan a little bit of time to uh, recover, recuperate, whatever he's doing, uh, and uh, he will be back. Don't worry, he's still around, so... Uh, but uh, I think a little bit of change of people on the podcast is always exciting. Maybe I get exchanged for one episode or two. You never know. But for this, uh, GT is helping out. So thanks for that. And as always, we have headlines for you with interesting ideas and, and show things happening on the BSD side of things. Uh, this time, it's FreeBSD is an amazing operating system. Woohoo! Yeah, so that's uh, an, a title of a blog post that picked our interest. And goes like this. So this is a small article about some of the adventures with FreeBSD that the author here did and why they believe it's an amazing operating system. Uh, they also have an update, uh, which uh, got this article covered in Hacker News, Reddit, and Lobster. So uh, it's already famous. So that's probably where we picked it up as well. Uh, we can probably read this later because there was some feedback, of course. They write that I think the year was late 1999 or mid-2000 when I one day was browsing computer books at my favorite bookshop and I discovered the book The Complete FreeBSD, third edition from 1992 by Greg LeHay. With the book came four CD-ROMs with FreeBSD 3.3 back in the day. Uh, they had already familiarized themselves with new Linux in 1998 and they were in the process of migrating every server and desktop operating system away from Microsoft Windows uh, both at home and at the company, to GNU Linux, initially Red Hat Linux, and then later Debian, which eventually became uh, the favorite GNU Linux distribution for many years. And when they first saw the complete FreeBSD book by Greg LeHay, uh, they remember noticing that the text on the front page said, the free version of Berkeley Unix, and rock-solid stability. And I was immediately intrigued. What was that all about? A free Unix operating system? And rock-solid stability? That sounded amazing. They immediately bought the book and became their favorite reading material for a long time, even when it wasn't <laughs> doing anything Unix-related. So that's uh, something for the bedside table, I guess. Um, they were surprised that they had never heard about FreeBSD before, since it has existed since 1993. But at least another Unix-like operating system wouldn't be completely foreign to me because of my experience with new Linux, and it wasn't. I did some test installs on different hardware, and I loved FreeBSD right away. FreeBSD became my first FTP server run from home. Later in 2000, I was employed by one of the biggest ISPs in my country and discovered to my surprise that the entire server and network infrastructure was running on FreeBSD. The only computers that didn't run FreeBSD was the computers at the office where the salespeople and secretaries worked, 
Those ran Microsoft Windows. So when I asked about the choice of operating system, the system administrator said something like, quote, people who know what they are doing run FreeBSD. Everyone in the communication industry run FreeBSD, unquote. So I eventually got to experience the FreeBSD rock-solid stability mentioning Greg in his book firsthand. FreeBSD was amazing. I was very performant. Uh, oh, it was very performant and extremely stable. Every single customer that hosted at the ISP, and that was a lot of customers, was being served by FreeBSD, and it was running on everything from old 386 PCs to the latest Pentium 4 machines. The only time FreeBSD needed to be rebooted was when it had been upgraded in the base system. During the time I was there, I never experienced a problem anywhere where FreeBSD was running. Contrary to FreeBSD, New Linux was viewed upon as a toy operating system. It was used only by some of the support staff for their private setups. And I failed to realize, uh, back when that FreeBSD was, and it still is, a designed as complete multipurpose operating system meant to be set up and tuned according to specific use cases. When I occasionally installed FreeBSD, it didn't always perform as well as a default Debian GNU Linux installation for the same task. Even FreeBSD on my FTP server at home eventually got replaced by Debian GNU Linux because FreeBSD had to be rebooted every third day or so, otherwise the performance degraded a lot. Debian, on the other hand, performed without any hiccups. But further down the uh, blog post, they basically list uh, in a short uh, itemized list here uh, one of the, some of the things they love about FreeBSD. So the first thing is FreeBSD is a complete operating system. Then FreeBSD is a very well thought out and very well designed. Once you get to understand how FreeBSD is set up and how it works, it is surprising how many details the developers have thought about. Then they list that all third-party applications is installed in user local and all third-party application settings is installed in user local etc. So that's separate from the operating system uh, files. FreeBSD is installed only with the features you enable and nothing else, and opt-in, meaning that you have to enable something in order for it to run and work. There's plenty of items that we couldn't list all in this one episode, uh, but there's plenty of things that I recognize that were interesting to me and compelling enough to uh, look at FreeBSD a little bit uh, more detailed. And yeah, I like the, the article. And there's a couple of corrections and um, some updates also from the feedback the uh, article received or the author received from Hacker News, Reddit, and Lobster. So um, I guess reading that one more time and getting the updated bits is uh, a good thing to do. Cool. Nice article. And following up, this was a story we touched on a few episodes ago about Hyperbola BSD. Our friend John Paul over at It's Foss did an interview with Andre, the co-founder of Hyperbola, and we're going to go through this article and cover a couple of the questions that he asked and their answer. This is a rather long interview, so we're not going to touch on everything, but we are going to touch on some of the questions. Last month, Hyperbola announced that they would be making major changes to their project. They have decided to drop the Linux kernel in favor of forking the BSD kernel. So John asked, in your announcement, you state that the Linux kernel is rapidly proceeding down an unstable path. Could you explain what you mean by that? Andre responds, first of all, it's including the adaption of DRM features such as HDCP, high bandwidth digital content protection. Currently, there is an option to disable it at build time. However, there isn't a policy that guarantees us that it will be that way. It will be optional forever. Historically, some features began as optional ones until they reached total functionality. Then they became forced and difficult to patch out. Even this 
This does not happen in the case of HDCP. We remain cautious about such implementations. Another reason is that they feel that the Linux kernel is no longer getting pr- proper hardening. GR security stopped offering public patches several years ago, and we depended on that for our system's security. Although we could use their patches, still, if they paid the expensive subscription, they claim Andre claims that the subscription would be terminated if we chose to make those patches public. Such restrictions go against the FSDG principles that require us to provide full source code, deblobbed and unrestricted to our users. And that's that's a very good point. I'm curious as to how GR Security can legally restrict people from releasing code that by license can't be restricted. But that's that's a whole nother matter. He goes on to say KSPP is a project which was intended to upstream GRSec into the kernel, but thus far it has not come close to reaching the GRSec packs level of kernel hardening. And there has not been that many developments, which leads them to believe that the project is perhaps inactive. Lastly, the interest in allowing Rust modules into the kernel was a problem for them. Due to Rust trademark restrictions, which prevent us from applying patches in our distribution without express permission, we patch to remove non-free software, unlicensed files, and enhancement to user privacy anywhere it's applicable. We also expect our users to be able to reuse our code without any additional restrictions or permission requires. And this is one of the reasons why that they use uh, UXP, which is a fully free browser engine and application toolkit um, without Rust for their mail and their browser applications. John asked, you also said in the announcement that you would be hard forking, you would be forking the OpenBSD kernel. Why did you pick the OpenBSD kernel over the FreeBSD, the Dragonfly kernel, or the Midnight BSD kernel? And Andre responded that OpenBSD was their choice as base for hard forking because it is a system that has always had quality, code, and security in mind. Some of their ideals which greatly interested us were the new system calls, including Pledge and Unveil, which adds additional hardening to user space and the removal of SysTrace system policy enforcement tools. They are also known for Xenocara and LibreSSL, both of which we had already been using after porting them to GNU Linux Libre. We found them to be well-written and generally more stable than Xorg, OpenSSL, respectively. Another question that they were asked is, why fork the kernel in the first place? How do you keep the new kernel up to date with newer hardware support? And Andre responds, the kernel is one of the most important parts of any operating system, and we felt it is critical to start on a form foundation moving forward. The first version we plan to keep in synchronization with OpenBSD where it is possible. In future versions, they may adapt code from other BSDs or even the Linux kernel where needed to keep up with hardware support and features. They are working with LibreWare Group um, and have plans to open a foundation soon. And this will help sustain the development, hire future develop, and encourage new enthusiasts for newer hardware support and code. They were asked, you state that you plan to replace parts of the OpenBSD kernel and user space that are not GPL compatible or non-free with those that are. What percentage of the code falls into the non-GPL zone? And Andre responded that it's about 20% in the OpenBSD kernel and user space. Mostly the non-GPL compatible license parts are under the original BSD license, sometimes called the Four Clause BSD, and that contains a serious flaw, in his mind, the obnoxious BSD advertising clause. It isn't fatal, but it does cause practical problems for us because it generates incompatibility with our code and the future development under GPLv3 and the lesser GPLv3. The non-free files in B- OpenBSD include files without an appropriate license header or without license in the folder containing a particular component. If those files don't contain a license to give users the four essential freedoms, or it has not been explicitly added in the public domain, it isn't free software. Some developers think that 
code without a license is automatically in the public domain. Andrew argues that this is not true under today's copyright laws, that all copyright works are copyrighted by default. Um, One of the other questions that was asked was, in a forum post, I noticed mentions of HyperRC, HyperBLibc, Hyperman. Are these forks or rewrites of the current BSD tools to be GPL compliant? Andre responds, they are forks of existing projects. Hyperman is our fork of our current package manager, Pacman, as Pacman does not currently work on BSD, and the minimal support it had in the past was removed in recent versions. A fork was required. Hyperman has a working implementation using LibreSSL and BSD support. HyperRC will be patched versions of OpenRC in it, and HyperBLibc will be a fork of the BSD libc. Do you have any plans to support ZFS? What file systems will you support? And Andre responds, ZFS support is not currently planned because it uses the common development distribution license, the CDDL. The license is incompatible with all versions of the GNU GPL. It would be possible to write new code under GPL v3 and release it under a new name, for example, HyperZFS. However, there is no official decision to include ZFS compatibility code in Hyperbola BSD at this time. We have plans on porting ButterFS, JFS2, NetBSD's CFF, CHFS, Dragonfly's Hammer and Hammer 2, uh, the Linux kernel's JFFS2, to all have compatible licenses with the GPL v3, and they also plan to support ext4, fs2f, fs, riserfs, and riser4. Um, but they will need to be rewritten due to license under explicitly under v2, which does not allow its use under GPL v3. And this is where personally I kind of echo some of the things that Alan was talking about. You know, I wish them all the luck in the world, but Perhaps I'm wrong, but they seem a bit naive on how much of a gargantuan task this actually is. I mean, doing a massive refactor at a single point in time is one thing. Keeping that working code as, you know, the code you branch from evolves on multiple different projects, that's that's an entirely different matter. And, you know, it's completely different. And I wonder if if they have the technical capability, the knowledge, and the manpower to do all of this work... It makes me wonder why they just didn't fork the Linux kernel and fix the things that they didn't like in the Linux kernel because they already have familiarity with how things run on Linux and the software packages they're using. This seems that they are completely adding an order of magnitude more work on top of them while also kind of throwing boat anchors out the side of the boat to other projects that they're forking off of. This is uh, this is a lot of work that they've planned for themselves, and as I said, I, I wish them the best of luck, and I hope they're able to make a go of it. But this is this is an enormous amount of work that they're taking on themselves. So it will be interesting to see how Hyperbola BSD develops. Yeah, if that's sustainable, or if they uh, run out of steam, or just get overwhelmed with the needs to make those changes and the stuff that's happening upstream. But yeah, as we said, uh, we'll follow this uh, development. And if there's news that cover the BSD side of things, then we'll definitely be covered uh, again in, the, in this show. Time for the news roundup this week. We found another blog post from the NetBSD folks uh, about improving the Ptrace API and preparing for LLVM 10. So this is... Uh, on the NetBSD blog. 
And uh, it's by Kamil Ritarovsky, uh, which writes, who writes that this month I have improved the NetBSD Ptrace API, removing one legacy interface with a few flaws and replacing it with two new calls with new features and removing technical debt. As LLVM 10.0 is branching now soon, like January 15th, roughly, I worked on proper support of the LLVM features for NetBSD 9.0, today RC1, and NetBSD head, future 10.0. So the Ptrace API changes. There are around 20 machine-independent Ptrace calls. The original of these calls trace back to BSD 4.3. The pt underscore lwp info call was introduced in 2003 and was loosely required uh, or inspired by a similar interface in HPUX, Ttrace, as that was the early in the history of POSIX threads and SMP support. Not every bit of the interface remained ideal for the current computing needs. The PT underscore LWP info call was originally intended to retrieve the thread LWP information inside a trace process. This call was designed to work as an, as an iterator over threads to retrieve the LWP ID plus the event information uh, for the process. The event information is received in a raw format, the PL underscore event underscore none, PL event underscore signal, and PL event underscore suspended. And uh, there's a couple of problems that he lists here. Uh, so, for example, the first PTLWP info shares the operation name with PWLWP info from FreeBSD that works differently and is used for different purposes. Uh, there's a couple of uh, subsections here that explains this further. Uh, the second problem listed is that PL event can only return whenever a signal was emitted to all threads or a single one. There's no information whether this is a peer, a pair LW. Uh, signal, LWP signal, on a per proc signal, no SIG info underscore T information is attached. The third thing is that syncing our behavior with FreeBSD would mean complete breakage of our PT underscore LWP info users, and it is actually unnecessary as we receive full SIG info T through Linux-like PT get SIG info instead of re-implementing SIG info T inside Ptrace LWP info in FreeBSD style. Uh, there's a couple of other things here, but uh, let's go into uh, the other thing listed here called the p-thread tracer. In the early uh, history of L uh, or lib p-thread, NetBSD developers designed and programmed a lib p-thread underscore dbg debug library. Uh, its use case was initially intended to handle user space scheduling of threads in the M2N threading model inspired by Solaris. After the switch of the internals to new SMP design one-to-one -one model by Andrew Doran, the library lost its purpose and was no longer used, except being linked for some time in a local test system GDB version. Uh, they removed the libpthread DBG when they modernized the pthread API as it no longer had any use. And it was broken in several ways for years without being noticed. Okay, so then they uh, described this a little bit with code. It's a bit Bad to imagine if you if we just read it for you. So you have to go back to the article if you want to see those. Um, so the problem with that uh, with the pthread tracer, but so what the code does is they run the pthread tracer and they find uh, that they can trace now the threads and the objects are shown. So that's uh, helpful for people to go into uh, debugging pthread. The problem with this utility is that it requires libpthread sources available and reachable by the build rules. The pthread tracer reaches each field of pthread underscore t, knowing the exact internal structure. 
This is enough for validating the PC LWP status, but it is enough for shipping into users and finding its real-world use case. Debuggers like GDB or LLDB using debug information can reach the same data with Dwarf, but supporting Dwarf in Ptracer is currently harder than it ought to be for the interface tests. There's also an option to revive at some point the pthread or the libpthread underscore debug, remapping it for modern libpthread. This would help avoid dwarf inspection or introspection, and it would find some use in self-introspection programs. But are there any? They ask. Okay, so then they cover a little bit uh, news about LLG and LLVM sanitizers. This um, this is about the update to LLVM ten. Uh, so they, they describe in this section that they keep searching for a solution to properly support LLD, the LLVM linker. Uh, because NetBSD's major issue with LLVM, LLD is the lack of standalone linker support, therefore being a real GNU ID or GNU LD replacement. It was forced to publish a standalone wrapper for LLD called LLD Standalone and host it on GitHub for the time being, at least until they sort out all the talks with the LLVM developers. There's a bit more about LLVM sanitizers, but we uh, keep that to people who are interested in that. Check out the article. It's in our show notes and read the rest if you're interested. The next article we have is about the first FreeBSD conference in Australia. Ooh, exciting. This is from Ruben. He writes, FreeBSD has existed as an operating system, project, and a foundation for more than 20 years, and its earlier incantations have existed for far longer. The old guard have been developing code, porting software, and writing documentation for longer than I... I've existed. I've been using it for more than a decade for personal projects and professionally for half that time. While there are many prominent Australian FreeBSD contributors, sysadmins, and users, we've always had to venture overseas for conferences. We've always told Australians are among the most ardent travelers, but I've always wondered if we could do a domestic event as well. And on Tuesday, we did. Deb Goodkin and the FreeBSD Foundation graciously organized and chaired a dedicated FreeBSD mini-conf at the long-running LinuxConf AU event held each year in a different city in Australia and New Zealand. We had nine rooms at the Gold Coast Convention Center and a selection of excellent speakers, including Ben Woods, who flew over from Perth to discuss the FreeBSD port system and help run the event. It was his first talk, but you couldn't tell. Ooh, cool. Philip Papes, one of the community's most fun speakers, who pontificated on the state of FreeBSD security and detailed the use of ZFS to those unfamiliar. Me, gulp, on how Orion VM and I use FreeBSD, with a slant towards how to get Linux people interested. Now that my new role has me pitching it to new clients, and thanks, Deb, for the picture. And he has a picture of him on the page giving his talk. G. Matthew Rice, who flew all the way from Toronto to talk about the Linux Professional Institute BSD certification program, and some of the interesting trends he is seeing in the industry. And Peter Grehan. Yes, that Peter Grehan. Talking about FreeBSD hypervisor Beehive. He also helped me clarify a few points on my own slides, for which I am tremendously grateful. Perhaps the biggest challenge was overcoming the global press about the Australian bushfires, something I certainly didn't help with. But we had a great turnout, and some genuine interest was shown in the project. Ben may also have convinced me to be a port maintainer, which is now very high on my list of personal projects to get started on. Thanks to Deb and the FreeBSD Foundation and Ben for helping convince the foundation to run an event here and everyone who spoke and attended. In my own selfish way, it was equal parts humbling and, dare I use the marketing phrase everyone knows now, exciting to be making history down here with everyone. 
Thanks also to the lovely Michael Dexter, who put in a good word for me with the foundation to present at a talk. I'm overcome with shyness one step at a time. We miss Groff, but maybe he can come down here one day. There might be ways to arrange that for next time, so um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, yeah, congratulations on that little uh, conference uh, or part of the conference there. And hopefully next time, next year, we will have a couple more people there and either in the audience or on stage. And so, yeah, you never know how this conference grows in this regard or maybe branching out into its very own thing. Uh, there's also videos already appearing on uh, the internets about the talks that were given. I guess we'll figure uh, where they are and then link it in the show notes for a future episode so you can watch those if you weren't attending. All right. Uh, then we found a practical guide to containers on free NAS for a depraved psychopath. So I'm not sure if you're in that category, but you might as well just skip out the depraved psychopath part and just do the free NAS. So <laughs> this is on medium.com. And uh, this is uh, an article by Andre Chekashin. Uh, this is a simple write-up to set up Docker on FreeNAS 11 or FreeBSD 11. But, meh, jails? You know that jails are dope, and you know that jails are dope, yet no one else knows it. So here we are stuck with Docker. Two years ago, I would be the last person to recommend using Docker, but a whole lot of things have changed past years. Their words, not mine, by the way. <laughs> so, jails are dead then? No, jails are still dope, but jails lack tools to manage them. Yes, there are a few tools, but they're meant for hardcore FreeBSD users who used to suffering. Oh, okay. Uh, Docker allows you to run applications without deep knowledge of application you're running. It will also allow you to run applications that are not ported to FreeBSD. So, prerequisites here. All you need is a terminal with root access via sudo, and then you're ready to go. Then, optional FreeNAS setup. Might think that uh, VM tab in FreeNAS 11 is your friend. Well, it's not. It's only your friend when your guest can boot on UEFI system. This feature is not complete in FreeNAS yet. Okay, so there's that. Enter Beehive. In case you don't know, FreeBSD now has its own hypervisor and even can run Windows. No joke. Just like anything else in FreeBSD, it's more of a framework rather than a complete product. Likely someone built tools to simplify it. IOHive and Chives. Uh, this guide will follow uh, IOHive uh, and their way of doing things because I forgot about Chives and whole grammar about it. Okay. So too long didn't read. Uh, Chives is a fork of IOHive because the author of IOHive sometimes is hard to work with. Okay. So set up the IOHive is done the following way. Uh, you install uh, the IOHive package, I guess, and then run IOHive setup pool equals your pool name kmod equals 1, and net equals em0. Substitute that with your uh, NIC address, or your network identifier. Uh, yeah. So this will create IOHive ZFS datasets that's uh, needed to run. And then you install Docker, the host OS. There are many variants you can choose from. Rancher OS, Core OS, uh, that are the most popular for Docker-only hosts. We're going to use Rancher OS here because it's more lightweight out of the box. So you download the installer. Uh, you uh, say to IOHive, uh, fetch a certain release from the Rancher website. And uh, so they fetch Rancher OS 1.0.4, the ISO, and rename it properly so that it's just Rancher OS without any version information attached to it so it's easier to type. 
Then they create the VM. Before you create the host, you're going to need to install sysutils grub2beehive. Uh, as usual, you can do it using package install grub2beehive. Okay. Next, sudo iohive create rancher 32g, which is a substitute of 32 gigs of uh, RAM for this VM. You can change it if you have lower requirements or higher memory available. That's fine uh, to change here. Okay. Then, uh, Adding storage to this little VM. You can always add more later. Uh, it's IOHive set ranger loader equals grub beehive, RAM equals 8 gig, CPU 8, uh, con NMDM0, which is the network cable, and OS equals Debian. Again, change the RAM and CPU values to your liking, and then run IOHive install rancher with that ISO image so that they uh, run the installer in the IOHive. Then in a separate terminal, you run the IOHive console to see what it's doing and can run through the actual installation and make choices there. And you set the root device, run this from uh, the grub console to the initRD, and then this thing should boot. Uh, once you've done that and set up the system and create passwords for the OS and the root user, you can reboot. And then it's time for the cloud config YAML which basically sets up your system with an authorized keys file and sets up uh, addresses for ETH0 and uh, gateway and DHCP set to false and name servers, of course, so that the system knows how to reach the internets. Then, uh, of course, change ETH0 to your liking, whichever you want to have. And then you run sudo ROS config validate-i cloud config YAML to figure that you don't make any silly tap mistakes in a YAML file. Never do those, only use spaces here. Yeah, yeah, happens to the best of us. Then you run sudo ros install dash c cloud config YAML, give it a directory, oh no, not a directory, a path to your disk. This is def sda0. That's probably the disk that you were exporting from your IOHive. And then the installer will ask you to reboot, say yes to that, and it won't reboot. Hmm. Back to FreeBSD. Uh, create a, a file, mount iohive slash ranger slash grub.config that tells you um, how to, proper, to properly set this up and run from the boot blocks to the actual initRD in Linux. That's a bit of an extra thing that's needed, but this way you get to full bootable system in your uh, iohive. On iohive itself, on the host, you run iohive set ranger, OS equals custom, iohive set rancher, uh, boot equals one, so that it boots when the system boots, and IOHive start ranger that it's also uh, running out. Yeah, as of yeah. Uh, fairly straightforward. Then you install uh, optionally Portainer. Uh, the whole point of this guide is to reduce pain. And using Docker CLI is still painful. Uh, there are a lot of web UIs to control Docker, of course. Most of them include a lot of orchestration services, so it's just overkill. Portainer is very lightweight and can be run even on a Raspberry Pi. Very good. So you uh, see the configuration file here in the uh, show notes if you're interested. And then you enable the remote API so you can control this thing without being at the console. Uh, you also can optionally enable TLS-less uh, remote API. Also, enable NFS option is optional. Uh, don't. It might look like a good idea, but it isn't. Proper way they write would be the way Freenas Corral does it with P9, the file system. And also set time zone in the container so that this tells you the proper time and date. 
Okay, seems pretty straightforward, and uh, people should be able to run now Dockery things in a beehive. Okay, that's fine, and very well straightforward, and people should not have no problem following that. Yeah, that's definitely a nice uh, nice way to get up to speed on trying to do that on FreeNAS. And we have another argument, or another uh, article, I should say, although this one might ruffle some feathers, and there might be some arguments coming out of this one. So. Uh, hopefully, Benedict, uh, this isn't my last my last uh, time guest hosting on uh, on this show. But let's. Uh, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> let's cover this article. So this is an article about why you should migrate everything from Linux to BSD. Now, this is from the same author of the FreeBSD is Awesome article that Benedict covered earlier, um, and I agree with all the points that he makes about why FreeBSD is great. And he's also written an article about. OpenBSD being an awesome. And I agree with all his points in that article as well. This article, he seems to be putting the details of Linux in the least charitable light possible. And I don't really think that needs to be done to show how BSDs are great. There's there's enough good arguments about why the BSDs are wonderful that you don't really need to rely on, well, that thing over there is bad, so you should use this. Uh, in my belief, you know, positive reasoning always trumps negative reasoning when you're trying to convince somebody to to agree with what you think. The other reason I wanted to cover this article is we have a fantastic community and I would love for our listeners to, you know, chime in and give their feedback and their take on this. Um again, I think there are very valid reasons for why someone would want to opt for BSD over Linux, but I don't think this article really makes a good case for that and I think our listeners can do a fantastic job making that case. So I want to hear back from everybody on both what he says and all your disagreements on all the things I'm about to say, um, so we can you know have a discussion about this. He starts off and he has four main arguments for why he says everything should migrate from Linux to BSD. I'm going to cover them real quick. It's Linux is fragmented, Linux has been hijacked, BSD is where the same people are, and license problems. Now you can tell from those four right there, like he's already pulling out the guns and and going to town. Um, this is something that people are very passionate about, and I expect that you know we're going to get responses that are, are just as passionate. Touching on the first one, the, the Linux is fragmented. At the risk of, of speaking heresy in the, the BSD community, I would argue it's not really as much as one would expect. Um, you know, The truth is there's a lot of code portability between Linux that kind of just gets ignored. If you compare the kernels between distros, I'd venture that it's 99% the same with maybe a few module differences here and there. And they're almost all using the GNU user land. And up until probably the last five or six years, the majority of them were all using SysV in it. So you could, you know, if you were on Fedora or on Arch, you know, you could grab uh, an init script from a, a, a Debian community forum and it would mostly work. Um, you know, they're all using the same packages. You know, back in 2016, I did a searching um, for a talk that I was going to give at Southeast Linux Fest, and I found over 900 distros based on Debian. And when you hear that, you think, well, that's just ridiculous. That's that's way too many. That That's just tons of fragmentation. But if you dig into them, almost all of them were really nothing more than a different default package set. You'd get this desktop instead of this desktop. You'd get this browser instead of this browser. You'd get this image viewer instead of this image viewer. They use the same kernel. They use the same user land. They all use the same repos. 
you know, if you take source from Fedora, OpenSUSE, Debian, and compare it, it's virtually the same. There's there's not as much fragmentation as one might, you know, kind of first uh, think, you know, which is different than on the BSDs. In Linux, I could take some kernel source from Fedora and I could compile it on Debian without much change. I, I can't go to OpenBSD and grab some kernel source of them, drop it on my FreeBSD box, compile it, and just go to town. There's there's some more work that has to be done to get all that to work together. So there is a much wider, varied community of Linux, but I don't know if I would go so far as to say that it's fully fragmented. Um, the next point that he brings up is that Linux has been hijacked. Um, and this comes up often. People talk about the commercial interests in Linux, and that's undeniable. There are tons of major, major corporations that are contributing code and you know, trying to push and pull Linux in all the different directions that are beneficial to them. But there's commercial interests in the BSDs as well. I mean, I, I don't think anyone would argue that Netflix is trying to take over and dominate FreeBSD and control the way everyone in the world uses FreeBSD. FreeBSD is very, very beneficial to what they do, and that's why they chose it, and they're contributing code back to, to help make it better, and everyone benefits from it. I don't necessarily think that corporate you know, companies adding in code and contributing is a bad thing. And when you're talking about companies that are actually competing against one another, like let's take Amazon and Google, these companies compete all over the place. They are competitors. And yes, they're both contributing code to the kernel, when all these different companies are contributing code, it doesn't give control to just one company. You know, one company is not going to be able to dominate and make the, the kernel better for them and bad for everybody else. So, again, this is another argument that I think is, is either maybe he worded it poorly, but I don't think it's as strong as other arguments that are out there. The next comment, which gets is definitely going to rile people up, is BSD is where all the sane people are. <laughs> yeah, this one, this one's touchy. Uh, and I, I, for this, I would just like to kind of fall back on the principle that people are people. There's, there's crazy people in every community. Um, it's just, it's a matter of numbers. You know, if, if let's say we have a group of a thousand people and 1% of them are crazy, well, then you're going to have 10 crazy people. If you have a group of a hundred thousand people and 1% of them are crazy, well, now you've got a thousand crazy people. So when you have any community that's larger than another community, it doesn't matter how big of a difference that is. Well, the larger one's going to have more crazy people because people are people and it's just a, it's a fact of percentages. The one thing that I personally like about BSDs and the community is that there's a different ratio between developers and users. In the Linux community, you have a ton of people who are just users. They never touch code. They never look at code. They just sit down and they use it. On the BSD side, I see that more of the people that are using it are also somehow lightly involved in the code as well. I would say that there's a greater ratio of developers to users than when you get on, on the Linux side, which is one of the things that I loved when I first came over to the, to the BSD side was just the how many people were actually involved in it. But, you know, again, in my, in my opinion, people are people. If you go to a, a conference that's kind of accepts everybody, like FOSDEM, for example, you know, and you sit down with somebody who's a Linux developer, you sit down with somebody who's a BSD developer, at the end of the day, they're usually a decent person. They're usually a nice person, and you can have a nice, good conversation with them. Um, there's always going to be outliers, and I don't really know if we can judge a community by the outliers that exist within it. Exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, the last argument he makes is probably the one that's going to be the most upsetting for most people. And it is the classic argument in open source communities, and that is license problems. Last year, I believe it was last year, we covered... Well, I guess, yeah, it wouldn't be this year because we haven't done that many episodes this year. We covered someone who was talking about their views on the difference between you know, the, the BSD license and the GPL license. And he made an interesting argument that the difference between the licenses, if you kind of peel everything back and get down to its fundamental issue, is it's a matter of where does the freedom lie. With the BSD and the MIT license... The freedom lies with the, the developer, the individual themselves using the code. They can use the code however they want. Whereas on the GPL side, they kind of put the more of the emphasis of freedom on the code. So they restrict people, but then the code is free. Whereas with like an MIT, they don't restrict what people do with it, but you know, then later the code can be restricted if something becomes you know embedded into a proprietary product. Now, personally, I prefer the, the MIT license. Anything that I write myself, I, I put an MIT license on. But obviously, the way license work, if I'm contributing to a project that's under the GPL, well, my contributions have to be GPL as well. But this is an argument that I don't think is, well, it's never going to be resolved for one. And for two, it never really strikes me as a, a valid reason to support your stance on which side is better. You know, for me, it's I would compare it to like the Ford versus Chevy argument or Benedict for, for you being in Europe, the Mercedes versus BMW argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if I try to make an argument about why Mercedes is a superior car and my whole argument for why BMW is the worst car is, well, it's not a Mercedes. Well, that's not really a very good argument. I, you know, you're going to you're going to fall one way or the other. Um, I don't really know that just saying, well, this one isn't what I use, so it's the problem, is really going to get us anywhere. And I think the more we talk about it and discuss the differences in why we choose, for instance, why I choose to use the MIT or why someone else may choose to use the GPL2, that conversation, I think, benefits us far better than just saying, well, that's the other one and I don't like it. But yeah, so you know, these are the, the four principles, the main points that he points out in this article as to his reasoning. And I think, again, there are tons of great reasons to use BSD over Linux. And I don't feel this article really hit on those and made the best case. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing a line out to everyone in the community. Um, write us, you know, send us an email. Let us know what are the reasons that you feel people should migrate from Linux to BSD? What are the things that you use as, as discussion points when you're talking with you know, your company or friends as to why BSD is the better choice to use over Linux? Because um, I really think there's some, there's some great opinions and thoughts out there in the community um, that are going to be really nice to hear and just be able to have a discussion about. So again, keep this civil and with a grain of salt, of course. Uh, but we, we definitely like to hear from people why they use FreeBSD or their BSD of choice. And uh, because there are individual reasons, of course, and there's also common reasons that many of them have. And I think we should talk about these things and not argue about them too much or not shout at each other about it. Um, it's just, yeah, we're very interested in why people chose one or the other. Okay, so um, definitely let us know. Okay, time for the Beastie Bits this week. We found a couple articles, as always, small enough to digest them in this section here. The first uh, we found is using the OpenBSD ports tree with dedicated users. So this is over at dataswamp.org. 
If you want to contribute to OpenBSD ports collection, you will want to enable the ports underscore privset feature. When this variable is set, the port system will use dedicated users for tasks. Source tarballs will be downloaded by the user underscore pfetch, and all compilation and packaging will be done by the user underscore pbuild. Those users are created at system install, and pf have a default rule to prevent underscore pbuild user doing the network access. This will prevent ports from doing network stuff, and this is what you want. This adds a big security to the porting process, and many malicious code run uh, by ports being compiled will be harmless. In order to enable this feature, a few changes must be made. Uh, in the file etc mk.conf, you must enter two new lines, ports underscore prefsep equals yes, and sudo equals do as. Then in slash etc as.conf, you must allow your user to become underscore pfetch and pbuild, uh, underscore pbuild, uh, permit keep env no pass solene as uh, underscore pbuild. You can uh, switch out solene with your username. And the next item is uh, permit keep env no pass solene underscore pfetch, as well as permit keep env no pass solene as root. If you don't want to use the last line, there is an explanation in the bsd.port.make pan page. Finally, within the port tree, some permissions must be changed. Uh, so you change underscore uh, pfetch, uh, new user and group for user ports list files, and the same for pbuild for user ports packages plist and pobj. If directories don't, uh, don't exist yet on your system, might be a case on a fresh uh, ports checkout or untar, you can create them with the commands uh, install dash d dash o underscore pfetch dash g dash pfetch user ports list files, and the same for user ports packages plist and obj. Now, when you run a command in a port tree, privileges should be dropped to according these users, so there's no malicious code being downloaded on the web while this uh, code is running. And that helps you create and port proper and secure software on OpenBSD. Then uh, we found Brute on uh, FreeBSD. Uh, Vermadon, who we've covered a couple of times because he's an avid blocker and a blogger and has uh, plenty of good stuff uh, to write about always, and very detailed. Uh, so this time he writes about the Brute file manager. Uh, this is quite a fresh and nice approach to files and directories, filtering, searching, viewing, manipulation, and whatever else you might want to call messing with files. So the Brute tools is not yet available on the FreeBSD system as package or port yet, but this guide will show you how to build and install it on your FreeBSD system. So this is, uh, here's, he provides a screenshot for us to see it in action. So here you can see filter for jails. It's basically a nicer render view about you know what uh, files there are and um, what kind of type they are and you know what, a little bit of a description. And there's a filter for ZFS as well. So that's a nice, interesting way of uh, displaying those things. Uh, there's build instructions in there if you're interested. And there's plenty of details further into the tools and what it can do on vermadon.wordpress.com. Next, we take you to a trip down memory lane. So this is from a FreeBSD commit. Uh, this is the Unix system family tree research in BSD. So from the very first edition, version 1, up to way, way, way down, scrolling, 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 all the other BSDs and systems that are sprung uh, of this one, like see a couple of branches here, and sometimes they close each other and don't 
uh, it continue in the future, but some of them intermix and or are running in parallel. So this is the history of the BSD operating systems until today. This should be fairly recent. Uh, so the latest versions, yes, has FreeBSD 13 current, NetBSD current, OpenBSD current, and Dragonfly current. And before those, of course, the latest releases of those operating systems. So this is a file that's in the base system and it's maintained by people. Uh, and if there's a new version coming out of any of the BSDs, they will be added to this tree. So it keeps growing. And as explanation down there for um, where some of the terms came from and, you know, our original authors and some of the abbreviations are explained. So, um, if you always wanted to see the beauty of the BSD tree, uh, then check out this file. Then we have an article on uh, uh, running uh, syslog ng in Bastille BSD. Uh, why would you do that, you ask? Uh, well, Bastille is a container management system for FreeBSD. If you're coming from a Linux world, it's a bit like Docker or Podman or Build AH from Red Hat, at least some of its functionality. They learned about Bastille BSD right before the Christmas holidays. Currently, uh, the primary work platform is Linux and just preparing to learn a bit about Kubernetes and OpenShift. They plan not to do anything work-related during the holidays, which is quite difficult if your hobby <laughs> is heavily overlapping with your work. Uh, but having some strong FreeBSD roots, started to use FreeBSD in 1994, Bastille BSD arrived just on time to be a good excuse to do something IT-related. So they walked uh, how to install uh, Bastille BSD, it's just a package install away, and then you enable that uh, RC BSD uh, Bastille underscore enable equals yes, as well as uh, you run Bastille bootstrap 12.1 release update. So after running that command, your system is finally ready to create containers. So all just a couple commands away, and now you can run syslog ng in Bastille. Uh, so they're not uh, too creative when it comes to inventing names and IP addresses, just using the example from the Getting Started Guide. Uh, so you just create an Alcatraz jail, of course, the classical name. And uh, they describe basically how to run a syslog ng and server in this one and how you can you know, provide logging to your uh, jails from a central place or from the jail to a central place, more like. A pretty straightforward article. Check it out and uh, do a little bit of uh, little exploring in the Bastille BSD world. And next and last item in this section is uh, NASA using software packages in package source. So this is interesting. Yes, this is nasa.gov. And they have an article here about using software packages in package source. Uh, it has an article ID, an official article ID, uh, dated from the 12th uh, of December, 2017. And they write that the NetBSD packages collection, for the people who have never heard about this uh, package source, is a third-party software package management system for units like operating systems with over 70,000 packages, at least at that point of writing. Uh, they describe how to make these available and how you can use them. Uh, so they describe basically how you can work with packages and uh, you know, creating uh, software from it and uh, compiling it using the packages and uh, like linking from a library as well. So this is interesting enough because of the URL, and that's this is really the NASA. And I'm fairly sure this is they have some other uh, knowledge base items there, like uh, how to run BNC or some other things. But 
just the mere fact that NASA is using package source makes me wonder whether there's a little bit more meaning to that. So if you know about this or are somehow involved in that, we would be happy to hear about this. If you have more information about this, send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv. I, I remember reading articles about them using Linux on the ISS. I don't know if they're compiling necessarily on the ISS, but you know, I, I wonder what the latency is like when you're trying to download a package from a repo on the ground when you're on the ISS if you need to install a package. So they, maybe they are, you know, have a hard drive up there. So if they need software, they can just build it and go. <laughs> yeah, ISS, because it runs NetBSD. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> it's portable. <laughs> yeah, so why not? Yeah, you never know. So this week, for feedback and questions, I had picked out some some great, really nice technical questions for Alan to answer. And then I got a message from Alan saying, hey, I need you to step in for me. And I said, okay. So instead of trying to answer the questions myself and either getting them wrong or simply go, well, you're going to have to wait until Alan comes back. I'm just going to go ahead and punt all those questions to the next week's episode and Alan will get to them. So for you special three, Sean, Christopher, and Mike, you guys need to wait one more week. Your answer is coming up, um, and Alan will get to those in the next episode. Uh, we're not deleting them. We're still covering them next time. And I guess Alan is just waiting for uh, you to uh, give it to them, and then uh, he can answer them in all the detail that is required. Cool. Uh, that pretty much wraps up this episode. Again, thank you for uh, filling in, JT. Uh, it was an interesting experience having someone else on board. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's nice to have some variety. Yeah, and uh, of course, you're welcome, uh, since you're the editor, uh, to come back anytime you're required. Maybe you do an episode with Alan and I step back for a while. Uh, you never know. Yeah, who knows? Okay, so thank you out there for listening, and uh, stay tuned for the episode that's coming out uh, next week. <laughs>